This season of the Sober Curious podcast is supported by Liars, an award-winning line of 13 impossibly crafted non-alcoholic spirits. So are you thinking about doing a Sober October this year? If so, why not make it a Liars booze-free bender and sign up for their booze-free month program? Launching in the US on September 21st, you get a full month's worth of non-alcoholic recipes, Sober Curious articles, and untoxication discounts delivered for free directly to your inbox. Taking a month off can be an amazing way to kickstart living Sober Curious, and Liars are making it easier than ever to get involved. Liars are available on Amazon, Bevmo, and at liars.com. That's L-Y-R-E-S.com. And you can visit liars.com forward slash SoberCurious to sign up for a special 15% discount code. You can also follow along on Instagram and find more recipes at Liars Spirit Co. Plus, people, you are hearing it here first. I have a follow-up book to Sober Curious coming out on December 1st. It's called The Sober Curious Reset, and it's designed to guide you through 100 days without drinking. Each day poses a different question about your relationship to booze, along with some insights and a special exercise to help you discover what the answer might be for you. Keep following me on Instagram at Ruby Warrington and ask to join the Sober Curious book Facebook group to learn more as we get closer to the release date. Welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast, a place for conversations about living a more conscious and connected life. I'm your host, and my guest this week is Liars founder, Mark Livings, the entrepreneur and marketing guru behind the Australian brand that is shaking up the drinks industry with their crazy accurate alcohol-free versions of all the classic spirits. In this final episode of season four, we discuss how the COVID pandemic is completely reshaping the hospitality industry, and as a result, the ways that we socialize and the role of alcohol in our lives. Mark also gives his insights into how excessive alcohol consumption has been conflated with an outdated model of masculinity, why he thinks Australia and the UK in particular have such a problem with binge drinking, and what he sees as the future of the booze business overall. This is Mark Livings. Mark, so nice to meet you properly. (laughs) Likewise, Ruby. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I was saying we actually met at a, a meeting with your PR company pre-pandemic, back in the mists of time, pre-pandemic. Yeah. And I wasn't can, actually uh, sure. I wasn't actually sure it was you in that meeting. I can, yeah, I assure you it was me. Um, and as we were saying before, I think I was jet lagged and 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 very very tired, and I probably looked ten years older than I do across the old <laughs> Zoom call that we're having at the moment. Well, you were extremely knowledgeable. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, this guy's got to get like employee of the year. He really, really knows his stuff. He's really got the detail down. And now I'm like, oh, it was the founder. Whose idea it was and has kind of like brought this whole thing into being. So that would make sense. Yeah. <laughs> so Mark, you're the founder of Liars, which, you know, you describe it as, as being and what it is, the first line of non-alcoholic classic spirits. Yeah, and essentially, so, liars are all about recreating as c- closely as possible the flavors and the um, experience of all of the classic alcoholic spirits, but without, with zero alcohol. Yeah. 
That's exactly right. So, yeah, that's the approach we took. We started uh, working on this, oh, I think it was back in 2015, 2016, and we really picked up momentum. But it was always our hypothesis um, that, you know, we wanted to help people have their drink their way, and that's become part of our sort of one of the pillars of our marketing. Um, but I guess what we were recognising is if people wanted to lead a life without alcohol, we thought it was an incredibly powerful proposition for them not to have to give up the, their favourite drink or an, a physical artefact of a threshold moment in life where it might be the end of the working day and the starting of private life. If your body and your mind has become accustomed to that gin and tonic or that bourbon and coke, we wanted to be there for that moment. But then it's the, uh, I guess, the user's choice whether or not to consume it with or without alcohol. So that became our whole broad hypothesis. People wanted to have their drink or their cocktail or the thing that they're familiar with, mm. and then we can enable it to be had with or without alcohol. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which have been happening, I feel like, in the beer space for quite a while. Like alcohol-free beer had been kind of really developing, growing, becoming more sophisticated in terms of the options. So for beer drinkers, like that was there. But with spirits, not so much. Because even with the sort of like spirit alternatives, it's definitely a different drink. Like you might be getting something that looks the same, but it tastes pretty different from what you're used to. And so what you did was bring in something that, I mean, some of them, I remember in that tasting where we first met, um, Mm. it was about 11 in the morning and I remember taking a big old sniff of the bourbon and it was just like, no, (laughs) can't go go there. (laughs) Because it was so, so reminiscent of, I mean, that was always for me, like the the dregs, like end of the night, like what's left after everything else has been drunk. Oh, we got this old bottle of whiskey, bourbon or whatever. And so for me, that's something I can't even go near it. But the, it was so, um, yeah, so true to the the aroma even. I was um, um, kind of amazed. And so I think you've done an amazing job of replicating these flavors. I know you put so much work um, and so much time into to making these as sort of like, quote unquote, realistic as possible. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, um, so realistic they made you sick. Um, <laughs> which is kind of, yeah, so like my my Achilles heel of, of alcohol is tequila. It, it all stems back to a very bad experience when I was underage drinking in Australia, which is very common and shouldn't happen, kids, if you're listening. Um, but the uh, for us, you know, that that whole paying homage to the original was really important um, to enable those um, moments that we spoke about before. Um, but one of the things I'm incredibly proud of is we did it so well um, that our non-alcoholic spirits are actually winning awards in spirits competitions. Um, and the first one that we won that really hit a home run um, was in the United States on the West Coast. It was in San Diego. Um, there's a, a blind tasting competition called SOMCON. It was basically a panel of, you know, advanced and master sommeliers and industry journalists, and um, there was no non-alcoholic spirits category. So being the entrepreneurial iconoclast that we are, we just said, you know, we'll just we'll enter them anyway and we'll see what happens. And um, we ended up picking up five medals across the range. Um, but what was really interesting is our vermouth, the, the aperitif rosso, we call it, um, actually picked up a double gold. Um, so it was one of the best in class vermouths in the show. Um, so we're incredibly proud of that. And I love that 
moment of shock and awe and wonder and disbelief when someone tastes some of our products and they can't believe it doesn't contain alcohol or they were fooled into thinking that it did contain alcohol in the first place in this circumstance. So, um, yeah, thank you. It's been an extraordinarily long journey that's taken me around the world several times in order to build and engineer the beverages. Um, but to get that kind of validation from, um, you know, these international spirits competitions, of which San Diego was the first, I think we now have over 60 medals in internationally recognised spirits competitions, all blind tasted. That's an incredible accolade for um, the liquids that we put into our bottles. Yeah, it is amazing. I didn't, I'd seen that you'd won medals. I didn't realise it was in a blind tasting up against kind of alcoholic versions of these same yeah. spirits. Mm. Pretty incredible. As someone who, you know, I... I've spent my career even way before, you know, Sober Curious, I worked in magazine journalism and I was always kind of a bit of a trend spotter, not because that's something I trained myself to do, but because that's just how I think. Yeah. I've always, and that's kind of why I went into that kind of journalism too. It was like, this is the next cool thing. And I wonder, um, I'm always really interested to speak to entrepreneurs about like where that idea comes from when it's a real ahead of the curve idea like this yeah. like what was the where did the initial inspiration come from because when I think about it in my own life it can always be traced back to a specific incident there might have been years probably of just casually or not casually but just kind of by osmosis absorbing kind of what people are thinking what people are talking about what's going on the sort of subtle undercurrents yeah. and trends there's always a yeah. moment where it sort of crystallizes and it's like ah this what was that moment for you with this brand can you remember yeah yeah a couple of things um it's it's a bit of a long story I'll try and make it as quickly as I can <laughs> but I mentioned before that I'm a marketeer uh, by background so um I have a marketing agency back in Australia um and it's one of the largest independent marketing agencies in that country um and we've looked after over the course of the last 10 years well over 50 multinational consumer goods clients, so Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Diageo, Pernod Ricard, uh, et cetera, et cetera, um, and a lot of those uh, beverage clients. So I guess I was already tuned in to the industry. Um, but we scaled our agency to a natural sort of size, and then the path that most entrepreneurs would take if they're in creative services is they would attempt to scale their brand internationally. We ended up scaling down the vertical, so we ended up doing a printing and production business, making packaging and printed material. We then did an import business, bringing in point of sale materials, specialty packaging and merchandise for, for brands. Uh, we then did a logistics and distribution business. And then we did a software business that attempted to automate the entire go-to-market marketing workflow for these global multinational consumer uh, businesses. And that group of businesses has been enormously successful by Australian standards. It's been featured in, um, you know, the fast growth, fastest 100 growth businesses in Australia for a record equaling four years now. So incredibly proud of that. But my magic moment, which preceded the second magic moment, so that, that background is really important, is I realised that we're providing all of these services and doing all these things. And the way I like to describe it is if you give me any product on the planet, that little group of businesses can do everything outside the box or outside the bottle. Um, so we can brand it, we can market it, we can advertise it, we can store it, we can ship it to a consumer. So I'm like, there's something here. I think we have what Silicon Valley would describe as an accelerator where you can put a great idea in the top and you can build 
a brand. Um, and the only thing we needed to solve for was that inside the bottle moment. Um, so for us, we thought, you know, let's take this to our clients. Let's go and see Coca-Cola. Let's go and see Nestle. Let's go and see Simplot and say, hey, guys, we've got this accelerator thing. We think it might work. We're an entrepreneurial organisation. We're a lot smaller than you, but that means we're a lot faster. Um, and we can help you commercialise your brands. Um, and if they succeed, we can hand them back to you once they achieve a particular scale. And if they fail, they're going to fail small before you spend tens of millions of dollars and trying to make them work. And so we took that around and absolutely no one was interested. <laughs> we can do this internally. So that's it all began as a bit of a spite project. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's spoken so, in the words of Larry David himself. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, you know, let's let's build a consumer brand. So developed these hypotheses and said, let's find a consumer trend that we can believe in. And the undeniable consumer trend that is the most salient of all consumer trends from the last decade is health, mindfulness, and lifestyle. And we've seen it implement, we've seen it impact and disrupt traditional categories. So if you look at tobacco, there's now vaping. So that's, you know, smoking without tobacco. If you look at red meat, there's now the impossible burger or beyond meat. And that is, you know, meat without animal. If you look at traditional dairy, um, you know, up to 15%, I think now of total dairy consumption is now plant milks across soy, almond, coconut and oat. So dairy without cow, and then, of course, we've seen the rise of, you know, beer without alcohol. So for us, we were looking at this going, how do we create a product that's health and lifestyle driven? What's pushed by this tailwind of the change in how consumers are behaving? And I saw a real opportunity in indulgent products, the like of which I've just spoken about. Um, and I think it would have been my first piece of really believable vegan chocolate being super close to the real thing. I'm like, actually, we know a lot about beverage and I think there's a role to be had for non-alcoholic spirits. And we thought we were developing the first non-alcoholic spirits in the world. And there's, there was a number of other players that beat us to market to be first movers. Um, but we were still developing our liquids and it took us about three years to get this right. So um, that was the second magic moment. And then the third magic moment was my co-founder, Carl. Um, and Carl bought the, the personal experience lens to this. So Carl is a very successful entrepreneur. Um, he ended up building and scaling his business. Uh, and he had a trade exit. He sold it for, you know, $100 million to um, uh, the innovation arm of the French Postal Service. It was a piece of logistics technology. Um, and Carl had been, you know, massively deluded by that stage because he started his startup when startups weren't even a thing. So he took a long and winding road to the top of the mountain to have an exit. So he exited with, you know, an incredible sense of fatigue. He was travelling over 200 days of the year globally. Um, he'd put on 30-odd kilos since his sort of, you know, late, late sort of mid-20s to late 30s weight. And, um, and alcohol was a huge... Part of that, it was interwoven into doing business, particularly in a number of cultures that he had to scale his business with. And business meetings are always either involved alcohol or there was alcohol at the end of it to seal the deal. 
And Carl, I showed Carl these things when he came in to, uh, to visit one day. I said, hey, this is some prototype non-alcoholic bourbon. And he's like, dude, stop everything you're doing. I wish this existed when I was doing what I was doing a couple of years ago. And you have to let me come in and help you with this product. And I'm like, well, Carl, one, you're one of my best friends. Two, you know, you're an incredible entrepreneur. So absolutely come in and let's drive this together. So that was the third magic moment is having a, a really experienced entrepreneur to run alongside me as a co-founder um, to build and scale these beverages globally. So that's wow. our full background story. I told you it was a long I love story. It. <laughs> You did it in but that's minute, how like, this all happened. 10 minutes. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I do. And so, cause I, I, I'm, so it was Carl who brought the sort of personal experience piece of yeah. like, I am sick and tired of alcohol and I need this product. Cause I do think it's funny when I used to work in, in magazines and we'd talk about marketing magazines and stories and things. And the message would always be like, don't just write for people like you. Don't for just sure. write what you want to read. But actually I think that any business that's truly entrepreneurial, that's really going to shake things up, has to come from that place of, I need this and it doesn't exist, so I'm going to have to make it. I think it sort of has to have that kernel of personal passion. Because, I mean, goodness, you talked about three years before you were even in, even in a position to bring this to market. Like, And anyone who's tried or even thought about trying to launch their own business knows that as soon as you get past, as soon as you start digging down into the idea, this is like it becomes a life's work in a way. So having Indeed. that personal passion piece, I think, is really important. So it's interesting to hear that was there. How about how about you? What was your, what's your been your drinking history? Like, was this something that you needed too? Yeah, look, and I think more broadly, the whole team does. Um, mm. Like every single person in the lies business is a former booze industry professional. Um, so I like to joke, you know, we built the Navy SEALs of alcohol industry into our team. So we've got these incredibly competent people at the height of their professional powers um, and they run the full gamut. We've got, you know, former bartenders that are covered in tattoos that, you know, have been making people, you know, incredibly high-proof Negronis, martinis and old fashions for years and then all of a sudden they've switched and gone, actually, I now have sons and daughters and... If I keep going this way, I'm going to not be around to see them grow up. Mm. Um, or in the case of, um, I hope he doesn't mind me calling him out, Connor. Um, Connor worked for CNC, which is the business that owns Magnus. And he was scaling the Magnus brand through Asia and the Pacific, which is an incredibly booze-soaked place to do business. And uh, when we recruited Connor, because he's, he's exceptional at his job, um, you know, he's like, oh, I didn't realise I needed this, but it's probably a good idea for me to slow down now. Um, so for all of our team, all the entirety of the senior executive, um, with the exception of Carl, my co-founder, who's a technology entrepreneur, they're, they're booze industry people and everyone's going, we needed this a long time before this was developed by liars. Um, so the really joyful thing for me as well as them is they're applying this skill set that they've gained in the spirit space or in the in the alcohol beverage space and all of those skills are still relevant to the non-alcoholic adult beverage space which is what we sort of call our category now um, but we've delinked alcohol from it and so for the whole team it's uh it's it's a really interesting paradigm for them to have embraced and 
for all of them, I think it's been an amazing process to, you know, inject some more sobriety into their lives. Um, mm-hmm. Many of them for many months now as well. So yeah, it's 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 ubiquitous through the organisation. My own battle, I won't call it a battle, but my own you know struggles is you know for often masculinity, um, deal making in the traditional sense. Um, and the like, it's conflated with alcohol and your ability to put a lot of it away. Um, I've had a lot of clients in the, in the beverage space. Um, I guess probably the most uh, alcohol interwoven client that we had was the beer guys, um, SAB Miller, uh, Molson Coors, AB InBev, Carlsberg. Um, there's this old guard culture around, you know, bonding over excess alcohol consumption and I've been caught up in that as a service provider and virtual teammate to these these businesses as well but I think you know what I find really refreshing is this new generation of guys coming through they're far far more balanced in how they approach consumption of alcohol and whilst they recognize you know yes they have a job to do in promoting it as a product they recognize now that it's not a product that you should consume every day it's a product that you should consume in an indulgent way Mm -hmm. um and that was step one i think and then you know the technology improvements in non-alcoholic versions allow you to have that cold crisp refreshing beer or that thoughtful old-fashioned at the end of the day without alcohol if that's what you're looking for so it's a pretty exciting future it really is and I think it's really interesting you say that I I was spending some time with another one of your colleagues doing a couple of events again before COVID hit and he was talking about some of the sort of the way that drinking is ritualized within the industry it sounded almost like the kind of hazing that happens that you know you read about in terms of like fraternities and things like that you know just almost such a, a an intense sort of machismo attached to like your ability to consume volumes of alcohol and yeah. still get the job done which I just think is such old school thinking isn't it it's like it's there's this sort of weird um yeah competitive almost punitive idea that like you have to be able to like punish your body to this extent and then still sort of push through in order to prove your metal and prove your worth which I think people are just overall particularly in in business in this 24-7 you know you described travel your 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 co-founder traveling the amount of hours that he does and so many people have that same experience of just constantly being on the road constantly navigating different time zones not so much now but it will inevitably bounce back to a degree the world that we're on, even if even if you're twenty four seven is just being on social media twenty four seven or being available on email twenty four seven, it's a totally different world now in a way. But yeah, I think it's, that is an interesting conundrum, though, isn't it? It's like if you've reached a point where you realise that alcohol is not feeling great, and yet it's still your job to sell alcohol. <laughs> I think there is a kind of there's going to there's there needs to be. And there will be a really much more nuanced conversation about what is, but then you put words like responsible drinking around it and you put words like kind of moderate drinking around it. And that just doesn't sound quote unquote as sexy and cool as what we have thought of about as drinking. And I wonder how you see attitudes around those concepts kind of evolving too, particularly in the way that alcohol is sold to us, you know? 
Yeah, yeah, and look, I'm, I've been responsible for selling alcohol. I'm, I'm on that team. I've put the jersey on and I've run onto the field. Um, so, you know, I, I do know what that's like. And, you know, my early career, I was with the Coca-Cola company. Um, and people are having the same, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess the same, um, uh, they're, they're having the same introspections on sugar having the same introspections on alcohol um, mm. and they're having the same introspections on fat. And for me, I've seen an enormous number of colleagues end up leaving the marketing industry. Um, the best paying jobs are the ones that are attached to global multinational consumer goods businesses. And they got incredibly good at making highly caloric, very inexpensive food and alcohol available to the world because that's what the world wanted at the time. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of these people had crises of confidence. I saw so many colleagues move into the charity sector, move into the green energy sector um, because I think they had that crisis of self-confidence going, I, I've trained my entire life. I've built this skill set to promote an idea or a concept or a service or a product. Um, and I'm going to take my skill set. And yes, I'll take a massive pay cut, but I'll go elsewhere. And I think that talent moving initially was the first domino to be pushed. Mm. And then I think we've seen our global multinational consumer goods businesses respond. And they started to realise um, a little more slowly than some of the staff they employed and a little more slowly than some of their smaller, more entrepreneurial industry peers, that the world was changing and humans were becoming more mindful in their consumption. So um, I love now that we can take that same skill uh, that's required to, you know, sell a box of frosty fruits to go and sell someone an alternative to a daily beer at the end of a very hot, sweaty tradesman-like experience and say, no, you don't need alcohol to be refreshed. Uh, you don't need alcohol to make a connection with other humans in a personal context or a business context. No, you don't need alcohol to be accepted by this peer group. It should be your choice. And I think we're starting to see that choice become something that's, uh, when observed, ridiculed. Uh, because, it, like I mentioned before, it was conflated with masculinity or solidarity with a particular group. Um, and now we're starting to see what's really important is personal choice be respected. And a number of things have been driving that. I think we're becoming incredibly more multi-ethnic globally. Human populations are increasingly more mobile, um, pre-pandemic, of course, but there's more of people from some country living in other countries, in other parts of the world. And, you know, there's 1.2 billion practising Muslims in the world. And, uh, you know, so we've got Muslims and we've got Hindis. You put that together, there's over 2 billion people that aren't consuming alcohol for cultural or religious reasons. So that's, you know, almost a third of the world's population at the moment. So inevitably they're going to find their way into people's workplaces, into people's communities and into people's social groups. And all of a sudden you've had this, you know, very masculine uh, Western, I would say, way of looking at it. And other cultures, you know, you know, the, the sinosphere is, you know, heavy drinking is conflated with you know, cultural um, acceptance and machismo, uh, as well as the Latino populations as, and so on and so on. Um, but the more that we brush up against humans that haven't 
had alcohol interwoven into their social fabric. I think those more the, the more moments that will precipitate of introspection going, actually, is my relationship with this healthy? If not, is it balanced? And if it's not balanced, do I want it in my life sometimes or do I want it out of my life? And that's where people like with the body of work that you've put together, Ruby, you're like the, the torch that they sometimes find in the darkness and they go, actually, there is a canon of writing and there is a canon of assistance and there is a community here for me to de-link that from that part of my life and I'm still a complete person without it. Mm, I think what you're saying is so interesting and coming from that marketing background, it really shows you have so much intelligence in that area about how much of what we have believed about alcohol is all perception. It's all how we've been taught to perceive this substance versus our choices being based on our personal experiences. And I think, yes, that's exactly what I was trying to do with Sober Curious is like, make it cool to know what's good for you. Like make it cool to be okay about saying, no, I don't want that. Actually, I want this because that makes me feel good, you know, rather than the cool thing being to get to, to drink with everybody else and just kind of go along with what everybody else is doing. So I think that's very interesting. And I love what you say about the just kind of brushing up against different cultural attitudes as well and how even when it's unspoken, again, I spoke about that thing about as a, a trend kind of forecastery person, just being open to absorbing by osmosis different attitudes different thinking that then can inform my thinking and the way that I see my choices in my life yeah I think that's all really interesting I'd love if you could speak a bit about why you think Australia I think Australia and the UK are kind of united <laughs> in their um and I'll say in our because there are homelands in mm -hmm. our sort of like you know tradition of binge drinking and really drinking to get drunk people talk about you know drinking Mediterranean style as being you know much more about appreciating the flavors of a, a, a nice a glass of wine over a lingering dinner although it's obviously yeah. not always the case <laughs> whereas the UK and, and Australia and the US to an extent mm. are much more about like let's drink to get drunk and get completely blotto have you done any kind of thinking around why why you think it is in these cultures in particular, we have the attitude towards alcohol or have had. Yeah, look, it's, like I said before, it's interwoven into the social fabric. Um, if you look at, you know, uh, continental Europe, for example, uh, it's a really good exam example of, um, you know, some cultures have the, the, the binge drinking attached to it, you know, Germany, Austria. Uh, but if you look at the aperitivo mm. occasions of Italy and Spain and Portugal uh, or the aperitif occasion in France, um, it's very, very different. And there's, there's a celebration of two different things. Uh, in southern Europe, it's a celebration of the beauty of the product. So, you know, the Italians call it uh, la bella figura, the beauty in the form. So it's appreciating the, the, the artisan craftsmanship that's gone into this beautiful vermouth or this beautiful liqueur that I happen to be drinking. Um, people aren't looking for that psychoactive quality in the beverage. They're simply looking for a beautiful flavour that complements what they're eating. And it's been interwoven into uh, these after-work rituals or these after after hours rituals of aperitivo, where it's one or two drinks is fine. And for whatever reason, there's no, and there are exceptions, of course, in the society, but it's not interwoven to get absolutely smashed and, and to the point where you can't remember what's happened. 
I'm pausing this episode to tell you about Curious Elixirs, a collection of booze-free craft cocktails infused with adaptogens that are designed to help you unwind. True pioneers of the Sober Curious movement, Curious Elixirs is on a mission to create the world's most sophisticated booze-free drinks. With flavors inspired by classics like the Aperol Spritz, the Spicy Margarita and the Negroni, Every Curious Elixir is handcrafted with organic ingredients and no added sugar. Plus, added adaptogens and plant extracts help you de-stress and relax without the hangover, whether you're toasting with your team or sipping solo. Visit CuriousElixirs.com to place an order and sign up for the subscribers-only Curious Cocktail Club to ensure your fridge stays fully stocked. Listeners can also claim one free bottle on orders over $50 with the code RUBY. Now back to the episode. Conversely, if you look at the UK, you look at Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, the United States, uh, in part the United States, um, there is a, a drinking for a reason to get that psychoactive effect. Um, and... You know, then the natural next question is why? And clearly, you know, um, formative psychological moments, you see your elders doing it, you're seeing your peers doing it, that's going to roll on for generations. Um, and it will still be interwoven into, into those cultures, um, particularly the masculine aspects of those cultures. But the next logical question to ask is why? So if it's been observed Yes, we understand why that's happening. But why do these cultures need this and these cultures not need that? And for me, and this is purely a hypothesis, uh, I'd love your thoughts on this, Mm. is it's a social lubricant. Western, Anglo-centric Western cultures are not good at talking to each other and expressing their feelings and expressing their emotions without the assistance of a psychoactive substance which lowers your resistance to sharing, you know, some intimate details about yourself with people that you trust as friends. Why do you need a catalyst in the form of a chemical substance that has a mind-altering effect to do it? And you look at the other cultures and they're very happy to talk at a deep, meaningful level without alcohol. So why and when did it become that social lubricant that we needed to have a deep human interaction with someone else? And have, have you studied this? And why is it Anglo-centric that we need that? Well, I mean, goodness, without sort of, you know, wanting to sound like an try and be an expert on this, I think that many elements of sort of Christianity are very oppressive and repressive when it comes to people kind of expressing themselves as they are, whether it's expressing their sexuality, whether it's expressing their feelings, whether it's expressing their vulnerability. These are, you know, there are very small prescribed sort of boxes where we were allowed to experience what it means to be a human outside of being a quote unquote good person and showing up and like doing the work and showing penance and all of this stuff. And so I do think that there's just quite a lot of repression in our shared history, you know, a need for connection and yet a sort of a shame around that and an an inability almost to express that need for connection because it shows a certain vulnerability. So I don't know, there's a, there's a lot in there, I think. And I wonder if, I wonder if more will be written about these subjects and, and in the future, as we do collectively kind of address and ask those big deeper whys, like what are the reasons that we have binge drinking? 
You know, what I, I take a lot of uh, encouragement from is, you know, we look at, you know, Anglo-centric Western young young people, you know, 18 to 25, so legal drinking age is 18 in a lot of countries, 21 in parts of the United States. Um, they're not coming into the alcohol category mm. uh, in as many numbers as they used to. Um so that's really interesting. So, you know, they are very quickly throwing off this conflation of, you know, um, masculinity or a conflation of acceptance or a conflation of being worthy in a social group by drinking. So I find that really interesting. Um, the second thing I find really interesting is my generation. I'm, I'm 40, so I'm an exennial or sitting in between X and, and, and the millennials. Um, but, you know, Gen X and Gen Y or Gen X and the millennial generation, we're behaving really differently to the young people who are simply saying that's not something I need in my life or if I do have it, it's only occasionally. What we've observed is people cadencing in and out of alcohol with big, chunky, long periods of time off the bottle or off the booze. So we started testing this and going, what is driving this behaviour? And for me, what we found is it's really interesting in how closely it's tied to how people are moving their bodies and exercising. So a metropolitan, median income or higher income person, they typically uh, outsource their uh, human activity. So they, they go to a gym or they go to F45 or Orange Theory or they do Bikram yoga or something. And what's really common across all of these things is that they tend to be governed by, um, and a lot of humans look for, someone to take control of their exercise regime and their diet and so on. So all of these have a commonality of having a four or an eight or a 12-week bikini body challenge. You know, let's start it in spring and get you bikini body ready or let's shred for a month, everyone. And part of that involves the elimination of alcohol. So uh, we've got those happening once or sometimes twice a year. And then we've also got the sober months, so the Octobers, the Feb Fasts, the Dry Januaries, the Dry Julys. And, you know, if you do one of those a year and you do two month-long challenges, all of a sudden there's three months of the year that you have completely fallen out of the alcohol category, which is a 25% decrease in your alcohol consumption across the year. So this middle generation is going, always consume the same amount of alcohol that I have, and then they drop out to zero, and then they pop back to their normal levels of consumption. So we're seeing a decline in that sort of broad demography in the middle there. And, you know, statistically we're going, oh, it's a slow decline of people abandoning alcohol, but it's actually not. It's this crazy cadence in and out of the middle mm. generations. Mm. And then, of course, you've got the boomers, and they're leaving entirely for medical reasons or longevity desirability reasons as well. So this movement is across all three stratas of our broad legal drinking age and up demographics. We put them in those three big buckets. There's people not coming into the category, temporarily leaving the category or significantly reducing their, their consumption across all three stratas. It's, I find it fascinating. It is just to see how different generations are driving that surge in sober curiosity what we see is like you say oh it's this trend it's a kind of a you know a downward or an upward sort of trend depending which way you're looking at it yeah. depending what kind of liquids you're selling <laughs> um, yeah. but actually it's a much more kind of like up and down 
sort of graph once you zone in and actually look at people's real drinking habits? Yeah, I, I think what we're going to find, and again, this is just me guessing, but as you've recognised a few times in this pod, podcast, I'm a marketer and we are incessantly curious and we observe humanity constantly. So one of the things that I've noticed from, you know, the you know, tens of thousands of people that are, that are in our community and in our database uh, and talk to us is that their length of months off or weeks off is increasing. Mm. Um, I, I even saw something today. So we set up a, a one-month booze-free challenge um, and we had a range of liars that people could purchase. So they could buy 12 bottles. And it was a big investment too. It was like 450 Australian dollars. So that's, mm. you know, 300 US dollars or 250 pounds, uh, depending on where you are. People are making this commitment and, you know, we gave them the mixology lessons with our brand ambassadors that I spoke about before, gave them a month's worth of recipes and we gave them, I think most importantly, a community of people that were doing it at the same time that they could share their successes and their, you know, disasters with equally. Um, and, you know, this was done around the ecosystem of a product, a consumer product, that what we're doing. But what was really interesting is how supportive the community is. Even though we created this little temporary community, it's, it's continuing in, in Facebook land. And uh, we had this lovely message. Um, we did our Boost Free Month uh, about, we did it in July. Dry July is a big thing mm. in Australia. Mm. But we had this, you know, note come through like, hey, guys, 74 days without touching a drop. And it's all, Liza's made this so much easier. So our brand and more broadly non-alcoholic alternatives have a really interesting role to play in helping people fulfil their ambition uh, and help people uh, achieve that sober curiosity and fulfil that sober curiosity and potentially, you know, have sobriety as a, a part of their life either permanently or for a longer period of time temporarily. And that's something I'm really proud of, that we've got a product that helps people mm. achieve something that's actually really mindful and, and good for them. That's why I'm such a huge fan of this category in general, you know. It's that it does make it so much easier. for It just removes that first barrier to entry which is like, what am I going to drink at 6pm? That's like, can be the first, the first thing, you know? And I think what those, when we look at, from, out, from the outside, we're looking at, oh, people take a month off here, they take a month off to do this training, they're doing this challenge. What we can't see is what's happening inside those individuals. What we can't see is the personal epiphanies and aha moments that a person has when they choose to really consciously remove this substance from their life. Yeah. Whether it's like who I had no idea I was giving up so much of my weekend to being hungover. I had no idea that perhaps my depression and the anxiety I was feeling was actually linked to how much alcohol I was drinking. I had no idea that my digestion would feel so much better if I didn't drink. And yeah. so those personal experiences, yeah. like you say, are what I think um, which can be facilitated by having products like this and having this whole industry kind of crop up to support it can really be I mean I do think that you know once once someone's really experienced what it's like to live largely and I'll say largely hangover free I choose to be fully abstinent myself I know a lot of people who are sober curious don't necessarily but to live largely hangover free is just such a revelation <laughs> when you've been used to alcohol just being that daily or even like weekly part of your life and I think that those personal like I said epiphanies they just can't be denied and ultimately those are what help people make different choices for themselves for the rest yeah. of their lives 
and they'll talk differently to their kids about what alcohol is having had that experience as well you know and talk differently to their to their friend who maybe looks like they are maybe having a bit too much and it just will it just starts different conversations yeah those uh friend intervention moments are, oh, right <laughs> are really interesting for me i like to um i like to think about the the failure moments where people have an ambition to do something but they collapse into an old behavior and um for me the the more we dig into this um the more we know it's typically in a group setting and it's in a public setting where if you're a if you're you're electing to be sober for whatever reason, could be because you're pregnant, could be because you've decided to be more mindful in your consumption, you've decided to be hangover free and live large. To paraphrase what you've just said, Ruby, mm. you turn up and you've got a, a physical artifact in your hand. It's a it's a way of saying to other people visually that you're not part of the group. Um, and we find there's there's an incredibly high level of anxiety. Uh, disorders within Western communities now. We think it's as high as 60% of people have some kind of anxiety uh, with different levels of severity, of course. Um, And uh, there's that moment where you know you're holding something different to what everyone else is and you know that people are judging you or you think that people are judging you for electing to not drink while everyone else is. And the one thing I do love is that the alcohol-free beer, wine and spirits category gives you a form of social camouflage. Uh, It gives you, um, you know, a way to not have to talk about your choices if you don't want to. Because for all intents and purposes, for everyone in that social gathering, you're, you're part of the group. You're drinking a similar looking thing. There's a collegiate um, sort of cultural thing going on. And I find that that's a really powerful thing that we're offering people in this category as well and as you just pointed out you could walk into that room with all of your reasons for not wanting to be drinking Mm. a lot of the time that reason might be because you have a health concern whether it's mental health whether you're experiencing anxiety whether you just you don't want to be out of it and actually what you're saying is that potentially up to 60 percent of people in that room are feeling the same way, are experiencing crippling anxiety, are feeling like life is meaningless and they, they're not really sure they have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> or maybe it's not that extreme. But what you're saying is that, you know, we can, as a non-drinker, look at all the drinkers and think, they're all fine. They've got their lives together. They're just happily breezing along. When actually <laughs> behind the scenes in that setting that we're looking at, feeling like the outsider, a lot of people are probably going through or experiencing some of the same things we are and yet then alcohol comes into the mix and no one talks about it and everyone's just horsing around and taking the mickey out of each other and having quote unquote fun until the next morning when they wake up alone again and they're just there with their problems that they were using alcohol to kind of paper over look alcohol it's a powerful substance it's a analgesic um it you know it's it's a painkiller and mm. you know for people who you know have anxiety of any degree um it's often a welcome relief to you know the thoughts spinning and um yeah it's it can be dangerous these sorts of things um and you know sobriety um you know it's it's beyond alcohol as well um you know there's you know cannabis dependency not that it's as addictive as some other substances um but you know all of all what we're observing in this category now 
um, I think is has a more, a more broader application beyond alcohol as well. So I think this state of mind, I think this acceptance of personal choices that we're starting to observe, I think we'll start to see that beyond the alcohol category and, and into other areas of, of substance abuse and potentially into areas of destructive human behaviour where we become mindful and we say, actually, that's not part of my life anymore. I'm choosing not to do this. Mm, mm. It's really interesting. It is really interesting. Two more things I want to ask you about. First yeah. one is um, you mentioned that, you know, a lot of people who work in hospitality and let's think really broadly, drinks industry, hotel industry, bars, restaurants, whether they're serving, whether they're selling, whether they're behind the scenes, whatever, there's a lot of um, substance abuse potentially hidden in those settings because mm -hmm. it's so it's part and parcel of how we operate here. Yeah. I wonder if you think that that industry sort of attracts people who maybe have a more of a proclivity for substance abuse issues and who perhaps now, given the issues being faced by these industries, like my husband works in hotels and he hasn't worked for this, this whole year and is very unsure about you know what's happening with the industry so yeah. a lot of people who've been displaced from their kind of their um their work environment which oftentimes is a very booze saturated environment do you have any kind of advice for people who who maybe are, are questioning their drinking as a result and questioning how drinking the role that drinking plays in their working lives yeah, so i guess the hospitality industry is particularly vulnerable um for two reasons. One, it's interwoven into the culture. Hospitality people, for the most part, they're often a little left of centre. Um, and, um, you know, if you, all you need to do is find one hospitality night on a Monday in some bar or some restaurant and you'll observe, you know, every flavour of humanity, every colour of the rainbow. Um, and a lot of guys come to the industry because they do feel like outsiders. Um, mm are drawn to the structure and the discipline of a kitchen environment when their life is chaotic. But um, if you read the, um, uh, oh, so it's a beautiful essay. Um, it was called um, Don't Eat Anything Until You Read This, I think. Um, and it was a food writer. Uh, he passed away last year. Help me out, Ruby. Anthony Bourdain? No. Anthony Bourdain, yes. It was. It was yeah, so this was his breakthrough essay. It's still available. It was published in The New Yorker. Mm. So you can find Anthony Bourdain's first essay. And it's it really opens the curtains on the hospitality industry and it shows you the, the manic, crazy, creative, beautiful, wonderful, self-destructive people that, you know, chefs can sometimes be. Uh, and more broadly in hospitality, if you include mixologists or if you include people in the hotel sector, so one, there's this weird outsider culture where substance abuse has a very large part to play and has done so for many, many years. But two, and I'd say more importantly, it's about the proximity and easy access to an analgesic in the form of alcohol. So that moment of stress, you know, will you have a cigarette? Will you take a shot of whiskey behind, you know, the bar and no one can see what you're doing? Will you have it with the people who are having a night out? Um, it's, it's so readily available there that if you have a proclivity towards substance abuse, given its proximity, it's almost inevitable that you'll fall into it. So, yeah, there's two really big things, culture and two availability. But what's encouraging, there's incredibly um, powerful movements starting to form of hospitality workers. Um, 
and you know they're even starting to pin physical artifacts onto their uniforms uh you know there's different ones in different countries and you might be familiar with some of the ones in the united states it could be a ribbon or a, a small badge there's something people... i think called the pin project the pin project thank yes. you so <laughs> what that's showing is i'm a bartender i'm proud of my craft i'm a liquid chef and i've spent days and years perfecting what I do and what I do doesn't need to involve alcohol because what I do is bigger than that. I am an entertainer. I deliver theatre. I am an ear that you can bend. I'm a couch psychologist or a backyard psychologist for people that come into my bar. Um, I am a hospitality provider and this is your living room for the night. Welcome to my bar or welcome to my restaurant. Um, But I personally am choosing to remain sober, but it's not going to let me get in the way of me practicing my craft. And I think that's a really powerful statement coming from people from within the hospitality community that don't want to have to leave it mm. because they love it, um, who want to stay as part of it. And they're saying to the world that I can do what I do. I can still mix a drink beautifully and I can taste it, but I don't have to get smashed every night to be a good bartender. And I think that's a powerful statement. We're seeing the rise of um, movements in the United Kingdom, I guess most saliently from organisations like Club Soda, where there's now consumers starting to hold the hospitality sector to account and going, actually, we demand better options in your venues and we will rate you um, if you don't have them. So there's now an index that's available uh, in the United Kingdom, you know, delivered by this third-party not-for-profit um, that's holding the hospitality industry to account, not only for one, the availability of options for their consumers, but two, also the cultural aspect of the, the destructive cultural aspect of the hospitality industry. And they're saying it's it's okay to be a mixologist or provide hospitality professionally without alcohol abuse as well. I love the way you're describing this because it makes me think that actually we're just witnessing the very tip of the iceberg in terms of a massive shift in how we what we even think of as hospitality on how we even think about drinking and how we even think about socializing. There's just seems like there's going to be so much opening up, particularly as we have had this massive disruption because of COVID. It's almost like we get to rebuild it again from the ground up once we kind of move beyond this. You know, part of me thinks that. And then part of me is like, well, meantime, in Williamsburg, where I live, like literally every bar is serving alcohol onto the street and people are just walking around like with with cocktails for all hours of the day in the street, which used to be illegal and now is acceptable. But um, yeah, interesting times ahead. The last thing I want to ask you about um, in terms of making the flavors. Yeah. It's a bit technical. Which was the hardest and why? <laughs> and... Yep. What do you like? Yeah, and like, what makes you not want to give up? Do you know what I mean? Like, because yeah. none of them feel to me like this is like, oh, that'll do. That's good enough. You can really taste the no. We need another vote. We need version two hundred and sixty-three. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, goodness knows how many. But which was the hardest, and 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 why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'll tell you what's the hardest that's available now, and then I'll tell you the hardest that we're still working on because. Right. <laughs> It doesn't meet the standard that we want to present to the world for a non-alcoholic spirit. So the hardest one in the range at the moment is the bourbon. Now, getting the notes of the things, the flavour notes and the mouthfeel that oak instills into an ethanol-infused base spirit, 
that's incredibly difficult from uh, a food science perspective. You know, there's uh, terpenes, there's um, uh, there's polyphenols, there's uh, phenolics through it. So you know, iodine notes and stuff. What's really interesting is um, uh, what makes a, a bourbon a delicious bourbon is is sometimes the same thing that makes a beautiful perfume a beautiful perfume. There's sometimes these stinky, undesirable characteristics in an alcoholic beverage that if you isolate them, you go, that is disgusting. But if you weave them into adjacent flavours that are a little more pleasant, somehow they elevate everything else and it becomes this beautiful, harmonious whole. So... Getting things like uh, an orange ester from uh, the juice of an orange, that's pretty straightforward because that's soluble in water. But getting the notes that are, are soluble only in ethanol and then delivering them into a non-alcoholic spirit, that's incredibly challenging. Um, and there's not a lot of them out there on the market. We had to develop some of them ourselves. Um, and we're constantly improving the ones that we do have as well. So... For us to, to create a convincing non-alcoholic bourbon is we needed to isolate the molecules that, you know, eight years of ageing in a barrel with a high-proof base spirit sucking in all of those things that I just mentioned into the beverage itself was an incredible challenge. And we managed to do it with the bourbon, and I'm incredibly proud of it. So that is the hardest. Well, like I said, it's the one that made me be a bit like, oh, it made my stomach turn because <laughs> it was so close. Which, which is great. You yes. must have loved him when I said that. He got fist bumping under the table. That's it. Yeah, we got it right. Um, and then the one that we're not happy with that we can we've we've been working on this for four years now, and we're getting super close is a tequila. And if you have any respect for the artisans in Mexico and how they make a tequila, you know that it's the most insane, crazy methodology to end up with a mezcal or a tequila in a in a glass. And you've got those moments like how the hell did these guys come up with using this process to deliver that? So what's really, really um, uh, difficult about tequila is no one's wanted to make tequila-flavoured anything. So there's no ready off-the-shelf available extracts of tequila. No one wants to make a tequila-flavoured chocolate or potato chip or whatever. Um, so there's this enormous... Um, uh, lack of agave extracts, agave essences, agave distillates out there. Um, so we've had to go and make a lot of them on our own. Um, and for me, one of the most important things is interweaving those less desirable, stinky characteristics into the tequila that, you know, are perhaps most saliently seen in tequila. People go, oh, that's weird, but I like it. Um, so um, for us to isolate those is challenge number one, and then two, to balance them into a water base that our, our beverage uses has been challenge number two. So we're relentlessly pursuing a non-alcoholic tequila because it's so important for people in the United States. It's, it's one of the most popular spirits in the traditional spirits category. So um, for us, yeah, we, we won't give up until we've got something that meets the standard of the rest of the liars range. That makes a lot of sense. I wondered if you'd say tequila, actually. Okay, final, final question, I promise, because it's actually got dark where you are in Belgium. Yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate you um, sticking this out with me. Um, what's your attitude to drinking now? Do you drink? Do you drink on occasion? Do you Are you completely satisfied with just having a liars? 
Yeah, for sure. So, look, this is something, um, and it's really important as the founder and the public face to be very, very transparent about this. So, for me, I still, uh, alcohol still makes up part of my life. Um, me personally, uh, alcohol consumption, I'm far, far more mindful of, and that's to do with brushing up in terms of, you know, in proximity and exchanging ideas with people like yourself, people like Laura Willoughby from Club Soda, um, and, you know, even my own team members, because um, we've, you know, we're going, you know, we need to sell this product we've created. Um, we need to go out there and understand it. And then when we start to understand it, you, of course, listen to why people are electing to give it up. And then you have those introspective moments as well. So I've certainly become far more mindful uh, than I was. And um, I try not to drink during the week at all. Um, but part of what powered me is this obsession around creating these flavours. And a lot of that's come from aspiring to be a sommelier as a passion project for a number of years. So for me, wine is still my, um, I guess, my Achilles heel. Um, I love what it represents. Um, and for me, I would love to see non-alcoholic wines achieve the same standards that we've achieved in spirits because then I'd have certainly a true alternative around the thing that I elect to have as part of my life and I interweave into my social experiences or my dining experiences. Um, but, Ruby, for me, um, you know, I, I, I certainly know I've, I've had far too much alcohol in my life to a particular point. Uh, a lot of that comes with being a white Anglo-Saxon male. Two, it comes with being an entrepreneur with a high-stress life. And three, it comes with being part of the, the media industry, which you know personally, it's, it's interwoven uh, considerably into what it is to be a working professional. So um, it's an ongoing awareness that grows um, and I get better at it every single day. Um, so it's my journey, it's my personal journey, and it's a very public one given I'm the face of a non-alcoholic spirits company. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's something that I have people helping me with and I certainly have people respecting my choice to not drink when I sit out now. Well, thanks for your transparency, and I think a lot of people will see themselves reflected in what you just shared, actually. Certainly people who identify as sober curious and are coming to this not because they necessarily had a, you know, a rock bottom moment where they really had to quit and that was it. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you again for sharing all of your insights today, for creating this beautiful brand. I can't wait for Liar's Wine, obviously. It's going to be coming next. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and I'm sure that our paths will cross again many times in the future. Very much look forward to that, Ruby. It's been a real delight to talk to you tonight. Thank you again for being here, for getting sober curious and for being part of this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes to help more people find the series. This podcast is edited and features original music by Aloe Audio. Find them at aloeaudio.com.